Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. The last week of the Dirty Bible. That's Emily. That's, that's what she's saying. This is, she is right though. This is the last, this is the. Oh, you want to clarify? You want to clarify? It's not, okay. Yeah. That could be interpreted different ways, I guess. <clears throat> she didn't, she has not liked for 13 weeks that I used a smudgy, dirty Bible for the last Bible that I threw on top. The last one. It's dirty. I could have used a clean one. I could have wiped it off. She's not saying the Bible is dirty. That's not what she's saying, okay? There's a well-loved Bible, yes. <laughs> we love the Bible. But she is she is right in saying that is the last time you're going to see that bumper. Some of you are going to praise the Lord. Let's move on to something new. <clears throat> we are starting a new series titled Love in a Nutshell next week. Uh, you should have gotten cards like this last week if you're with us. There's still invitations um, like this that you can grab if you'd like. But love is compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, forgiving, patient, considerate, forbearing, peaceful, slow to anger, honest, protecting, trusting, hope-filled, active. Love is from God. And that's only a few of the descriptions of love that we are given in the New Testament. For three weeks, we're going to be looking at what love is. Wouldn't you love more of these attributes in your relationships, in your households? Don't you think that would create a healthier context to be in relationship in? I think it would. And so for three weeks, we're going to be looking at that. So I really encourage you to come back. Again, we have house groups associated with this, so you can sign up for those on the app. should be good times. Um, Because we are starting a new series next week, that means that we are coming to the end of 13 weeks exploring the life and teachings of Jesus. We started way back on January 8th. We are coming to a close here today. What we've been saying throughout this whole series is that your proximity to Jesus, your proximity to Jesus will directly impact every relationship you have, including your relationship to yourself. And that's an important one that we oftentimes forget about, that we have a relationship to ourselves and the way, the the closer we are to Jesus, the more rightly and correctly we will understand ourselves and view ourselves. And that's a really important piece as well. Because when you're far from Jesus, you live selfishly. When you are far from Jesus, you live selfishly. And selfishness always hurts. It hurts others. It always hurts yourself. But when you are close to Jesus, you are living in love. And all of these characteristics that we just talked about are far more present in your life, far more present in your relationships, in your households. And it can become really beautiful when these characteristics of of love become embodied in a relationship, when it's reciprocated, or in a marriage, when it's reciprocated, or in a church community, when those characteristics are reciprocated, beautiful things begin to happen. The world begins to change when they're reciprocated within communities. So I hope that over the past 13 weeks, you have a better understanding of Jesus and you've grown closer to him and you've become more like him because of our time together. To conclude the series, I want to look at a story that John shares to end his gospel. But to give you a little bit of context, before Jesus died, 
There's this climactic moment where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and, and he declares this brand new covenant and this brand new commandment to his people. And there's this dynamic energy that is filling that upper room and everyone is very emotional and everyone's very excited. And Peter, Peter is there. Peter is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, one of his closest friends. He's one of his inner circle. He says this, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And all of the disciples said the same. Peter assumed that Jesus was readying his troops to go to war, to to take down these oppressive Romans that had been ruling in their land. He was ready to pick up a sword and follow Jesus even to death. And so Peter was surprised. A few hours later, when Jesus was arrested, he was chained and he was dragged before the the Jewish courts and he was put on trial. And Peter is standing there beside a fire, keeping warm. It's an important little detail that Matthew's gospel overlooks. He doesn't share, but John's gospel says that this is happening around a fire. It's an important detail that we'll come back to in just a minute. And he's watching this, this happen, right? Jesus being beaten and mocked and spit on. He's watching all this happen. And this little girl... It's an important part of the conversation too, right? This little girl, this servant girl comes to him and he says, hey, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out to the gateway where another servant saw, girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, but he denied it again with an oath this time. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. Peter spent three years watching Jesus, traveling with him, watching everything he did, listening to his teachings. His first encounter with Jesus is when Jesus filled a boat full of fish because Peter had been out all night and he hadn't caught a thing. And so Jesus filled his boat with fish. He then went and healed Peter's mother-in-law. He, P- Peter watched as Jesus turned water into wine. Peter was there when Jesus raised the centurion's daughter back to life. He was there when Jesus called Lazarus out of the grave. He was there when Jesus on the mountaintop, you know, when, he, when, when Elijah and Moses appeared alongside him. He was there when the four men crippled, carried their crippled friend in on a mat, and that same man walked out of that, that, that room walking on his own power. He saw Jesus cleanse lepers, heal the blind, the mute, and the deaf. Peter was there when Jesus calmed the storm. Peter was even there when Jesus called him out to walk upon the waters. For three years, for three years, He walked alongside Jesus and saw everything, all the incredible things Jesus did. He was there, experienced it firsthand. And yet when this little girl comes to Peter and asks him, were you with him? Were you one of his followers? Asking him if he knows him. Do you know that man in there who's being ridiculed? Do you know that man in there who's being slapped? Do you know that man who's being spit on? Do you know that man who's being laughed at? Do you know him? No. I do not know that man. He denies it emphatically even with gusto, right? Like I swear on my mother's grave. I do not know that man. 
I, I swear with everything inside of me, I do not know that man. He begins calling down, how dare you accuse me of not being trustworthy? I don't know the man. I said it. I don't know him. Over and over and over again, he denies it. Peter was hot-headed. He had a bad temper. He made impulsive decisions. He was reckless. He was quick to judge. He was passionate and loud. But there was one quality about Jesus. I'm sorry, one quality about Peter. Lots of qualities about Jesus. We could go on for that. One quality about Peter that prompted Jesus to pick him to be the leader of the disciples. It wasn't any of these other characteristics. His 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 bad temper, impulsive decisions, reckless. It was none of those. It was one one characteristic that caused Jesus to pick him as the leader. We're told that immediately as the rooster crowed, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He remembered what Jesus had said, and he went out and he wept bitterly after he denied jesus after his cowardice was revealed to the world his temper had flared his self-protecting heart was revealed he saw all that he had done and he knew that it was wrong don't pass this up friends this is so important peter was not perfect he did wrong he denied jesus but when he acknowledged when it was put before him that he had done wrong he knew it he wept bitterly he wept authentically and there was a deep contrition and an honest sorrow about him he knew what he was, he had done was wrong and he didn't say well you know i was just under a lot of stress well you know i hadn't slept all night and you know how we are when we don't get sleep or we have we lack self-control and i can't be blamed then for denying jesus because i was just really 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 tired well, you know, I just assumed that it was the end. Jesus had been arrested. He was taken away. What, what good is it now for me to be arrested alongside of him, right? He didn't justify. He didn't make excuses as to why he denied Jesus. He simply acknowledged that he had done wrong and it broke him. His contrite heart was full of sorrow and it became bitter and full of tears. Take a minute to look back at all the great biblical characters, the ones that we celebrate, the ones that we know, the ones who God used mightily throughout the generations. I mean, every single one of them was a screw-up. Every single one of them was, was insecure and weak. They were all terrible sinners. The world never would have chosen any of these people to be leaders, and yet these are the ones that God chose time and time again to lead his movement forward because of one characteristic that they all shared. Noah was spared from the flood, not because his behavior was righteous, but because his attitude was humble. He was a mess and he was a sinner like everybody else who perished in the flood. But unlike him, he knew he was a mess. He knew of his sin and it humbled him. Abraham was a coward who lied and cheated and manipulated his way out of many troublesome circumstances. But when confronted with his sin, he acknowledged his sin and it humbled him. Moses was a babbling, insecure murderer who lacked courage, and yet God used him to free his people. Moses was far from the ideal, confident leader we often portray him as, and yet he knew his insecurities, he knew his sin, he knew his failures, and it humbled him, allowing God to use him in mighty ways. Gideon was the weakest of his tribe, which was the weakest of all the tribes in Israel. 
He was far from confident, far from perfect. He was far from sinless, but he knew it. And it humbled him. David was a murderer and an adulterer, but he knew it and his heart was contrite. I could go on and on, but the point I think is made. My friends, insecurity, we all have it. Sin, goodness, we all have it. We've all made mistakes. We are all flawed individuals. Sin has never kept God from using people. Flaws have never kept God from using people. Insecurity has never kept God from using people. Mistakes have never kept God from using people. You know what keeps God from using people? Pride. Self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, these are the things that keeps God from using people. And so we need to place ourselves in the company of these heroes of old and remember that God only uses humble, messed up sinners. It was their faith and their humility, not their self-righteousness that God was looking for when he went to look for leaders of his movement. And so I spent some time reflecting this past week on some of my failures over the years. And like all of ours would be, the list was getting exceedingly long because we've all failed and I failed many, many times. But I want to share a few of the times when I let someone down or I failed to do what was expected of me or I had made a mistake. And there's a purpose to all this, so we'll get to eventually. When I was younger, I was about eight years old. My dad had a red Camaro. I've shared this story before, so some of you may not know where I'm going with this, but there were two very, very heavy doors on this Camaro. And he pulled into the parking lot, and um, he's like, all right, bud, hop on out. And so what do I do? Well, I'm a little boy, right? So I push the seat forward to crawl out, and I take that door, and I shove it, and it slams against the car next to us. And there was a gentleman in that car. That's a gracious word for him, as you'll learn in a minute. He, he felt the car shake. He heard the, the crash against his car. And he gets out of that car, and he starts reaming me out. You... I mean, I, I, I can't. I can't even pronounce those words, how, how bad it was, right? You bleeping, beep out, how clumsy, how irresponsible. He's yelling at my dad. He's yelling at me. I mean, it's a scene in this parking lot. And I didn't say, well, you know, Chevy shouldn't have made their car so dang heavy. <laughs> I didn't say, well, you know what? You parked too close to the line. My heart was sunk. I knew what I had done was wrong. A few years later, it was the first game of my middle school travel baseball season, and my coach had me starting pitcher. I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I walked to that mound. I was so confident, and I struck out the very first batter. And then before we could record the next two outs, I had given up 12 runs. <laughs> I mean, kids were just hitting the ball over the fence left and right. It was, it was ridiculous. I just got destroyed, utterly destroyed. And I could have said, well, that's what's going to happen when your team gives the other team seven outs, right? And it's your all fault on the field behind me. You didn't make the plays. The umpires were horrible. You know what's so sad about this? I find myself saying all of these things when I watch my kids play. <laughs> I didn't say it myself back then, but here's what I'm saying as a father watching my kids play. Oh, the umpires were horrible. They weren't giving us any of the calls. The strike zone was completely messed up. Well, you know, those kids, they've been training all winter, and we just haven't had those resources, so we haven't been practicing as much. 
I'm skipping out a lot of uh, I'm skipping over a lot of moments in in my life. Um, but many many years later, I was I was cutting my son's Ethan's hair, and he was about seven or eight at the time. There's a long backstory as to why I always cut my kids' hair, and uh, you're like, guys, you're like, yeah, I can see that you cut your own hair because it's it's a mess, right? There's a backstory to why I'm growing my hair out too that I'll tell you someday um, that I've been I've been learning lately, but. Ethan was like seven or Ethan was like seven or eight um, at this time, and you know all the kids back then were getting like the you know when you when you part your hair you wanted that nice that nice clean line down the part, and I was like dude how hard how hard could that be to do something like that right so I kid you not guys I cut about a half inch trench through his hair, and he was so gracious he was so so kind. oh man I could have said well you know what you get what you pay for. That's, that's just what happens. That's what happens, right? Oh, if you would have just kept still, Ethan, then it would have been better. But one more. A few years ago, I was um, I was helping to wash dishes after I think it was Easter dinner. I was at my in-laws' house, and um, they had received a gift, a handmade individual painted bowl from a missionary. I think, right? Yeah, they got it in Italy when they were visiting. They bought it in Italy. I know, shop for it. Okay, something. Really, really special, precious bowl, hand painted. You guys know where this is going. Okay. Uh, so I was, you know, s- serving the family, washing it by hand, and it slipped out of my hands, and it fell against the quartz countertop and shattered all over the place. And I could have said, well, you shouldn't have bought such slippery, slo- slippery, slippery soap. Man, I should have practiced that. You shouldn't have bought such slippery soap. It's the soap's fault, not my fault. Okay, so let, let me just assure you these were not the worst things that I came up with on my list of all the things that I've you know, done over the years. But that's not my point. My point is this. After Jesus rises from the grave, he appears to his disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, the same place where he had called these same disciples about three years prior. They were out fishing, and just like the first time he encountered them, they hadn't caught anything. And so Jesus tells them to throw their nets on the right side of the boat, and they haul in 153 fish, we're told. Peter jumps out of the boat. He recognizes that it's, that it's Jesus, the resurrected Lord, and he jumps out of his boat, and he swims to shore, right? He is, he is eager, right? This is Peter. He, he makes impulsive decisions. He just does whatever feels right in the moment. He just jumps in. He swims to shore. And he finds Jesus sitting around a fire, a campfire. The same scenario that Peter had been in when he denied Jesus. With the smell of the charcoal fire reigniting the memories of that night's denial, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. The the, the these is referring to the disciples, it's referring to the fish, it's referring to his occupation, it's referring to life. Do you love me most of all? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep. See, every indication suggests this is the first time Jesus had been alone with Peter since he had denied him. Peter had failed. Peter had sinned. Peter had denied Jesus. We know that. That is a fact. Peter knew it. Jesus knew it. Everybody knew it at this point. He had run away in Jesus' greatest hour of need. 
But this did not disqualify him from being used by God. And so Jesus takes him back to that fateful night. They're standing around that campfire and he speaks not just forgiveness over Peter. He reinstates Peter's purpose. And some of you need to hear this this morning because some of you are walking around thinking, I've done too many things. I've said too many things. I've made too many errors. I've committed too many sins. God can't use me anymore. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't only forgive Peter of denying him, but he reinstates his purpose. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, lead my people. Peter, you failed, yes, but that does not disqualify you. You screwed up, yes, that is true, but I came to commission screw-ups. You're a sinner. But Jesus came to not only save sinners, but to reinstate sinners to their purpose. And Peter could accept it because underneath his bold, hot-headed temper, his impatient, impulsive self was a tender-hearted, humble, contrite man simply wanting to love Jesus. His heart's desire was to love Jesus. He didn't walk away that night justifying his actions. The, the night that he denied Jesus, he didn't walk away justifying his actions. He didn't, he didn't make up excuses as to why he denied Jesus. No, he went and he wept bitterly. His heart was contrite. His heart was broken over his actions. He was humble. He knew he was a screw-up. He knew he had sinned, and he did not deny it. He may have denied Jesus one moment, but in the next moment, he did not deny that he had denied him. My friends, we're sinners. That's truth that we all need to acknowledge. But what we do with that truth that we are sinners impacts everything. Jesus came around a very humble Peter, not a perfect Peter, a very humble Peter, not a Peter who would never sin again, but a humble, softened in heart, contrite Peter, and he reinstated him to purpose to lead the way going forward. You know, after I shoved that door into that, uh, that Camaro door into that other car, my dad didn't take away all of my rights to ever sit in the back seat again. The next time that we had to go somewhere, my dad came along and he said, hey, Ross, hop in the back. We're going to go park in between two other cars and you're going to get out and it's going to be okay. He mercifully gave me a second and third and fourth and on and on and on chance. When I <clears throat> gave up 12 home runs to start 12, they weren't all home runs. When I gave up 12 runs to start my baseball season, several weeks later when we were playing in the district championship when the game was on the line, my coach called me, of all people, to come and pitch the final innings of that game. He gave me a second chance. When Ethan's hair grew back and he needed another haircut, he mercifully gave me a second chance. Unless he wanted to pay for it himself, he was going to do that anyway. So. <laughs> and when the dishes needed to be done after a holiday meal, my in-laws only sometimes still hold that scenario over my head. Friends, a contrite, humble heart will never outfail God's mercy. Some of you need to hear that this morning. A humble, contrite heart will never outfail God's mercy. See, I imagine Jesus looking at Peter in the eyes and giving him a haunting, though terribly personal commission. He continues by saying, Very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands 
and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to me, come follow me. Peter, one day you're going to die the most humiliating of all deaths. We're told um, by tradition that Peter was crucified just like Christ was. But he was crucified upside down, tradition tells us. It was the most humiliating death that humans had invented and that humans had imagined. Jesus is saying, Peter, from where you are right now, following me is going to be a continual journey further into your humility. From where you are right now to where you will end up, I want your journey to go deeper into humility. That's my calling for you. And that's my calling for all of my followers. Come, follow me deeper into humility. See, humility is thinking less about yourself. It isn't wallowing in self-pity and slumping you know, around thinking and behaving as if we're just pathetic imbeciles and we can't ever do anything right and it's thinking so poorly by yourself. That's not humble. That's self-pity. And they're very, very different. Humility isn't thinking less about yourself. It's actually thinking just about yourself less. That's all humility really is. It's not thinking less about yourself as if you know, you're pathetic and you're a horrible sinner. It's just thinking about yourself less. Often people think that to be humble means to highlight our sinfulness, but to acknowledge God's grace. But that really just puts the attention in the wrong place. It puts the attention on our sin and only tangentially glorifies God. But to be humble is to acknowledge our sin, but to highlight God's grace. And this puts the attention on God and his action, his fame, his glory, rather than on us. And so a week or two later, after Jesus ascends and is enthroned in heaven... Peter finds himself before the same group of Jewish leaders that had arrested, mocked, assaulted, and sent Jesus to his death. The same group of people who challenged his devotion the night he denied Jesus. He's standing before them because he healed a crippled man in Jesus' name. And we're told that Peter, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's a distinction he didn't have when he denied Jesus. It's an important distinction. The courage that we have as followers of Jesus is not conjured up by our own efforts. It is given us by Christ's Spirit within us. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Remember, these are the same people who he denied Jesus before, right? These are the same people who mocked and assaulted and beat upon Jesus about a week prior to this, maybe two weeks prior to this. Forty days prior to this. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage, the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were just unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin threatened them and told them to stop doing miracles. They, stopped, they, they told them to stop speaking in Jesus' name. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that their chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So many times courage and boldness was, was mentioned in this conversation when Peter was before the very people who he denied Jesus before about 40 days prior to this. Something had happened drastically to Peter in these moments, right? He denied Jesus one time. He, he is reinstated by Jesus a few weeks later, and he goes on to speak in such great courage, with great courage and great boldness, the very words that would set so many free. Peter was given so many opportunities to protect himself. Denying Jesus would have been profitable for him. That certainly would have prolonged his life. But I imagine it was after many years of reflecting on that faithful night and how Jesus had reinstated him, even the sinner, the screw-up, the failure that Peter was, Jesus reinstated him. How he had humbled himself before God and he had been filled with the Holy Spirit to speak courageously. How he wept bitterly at his own sin and how he mourned over his own sin and how he had been reinstated to lead God's people because of his contrition. And despite his sin, he wrote this in his first letter. All of you, here's what I want for all of you. Now we recognize we're sinners. Yes, we recognize we're broken. We're all messed up. We're all flawed. We're all screw-ups. All of us. And yet God has come near to me to lift me up. And so all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. You know why? Because God opposes proud people. But he shows favor to humble people. And so humble yourselves. And when you humble yourselves, God will lift you up. God will reinstate you. God will set you back upright. God favors the humble and he will pick the humble up when they fail. But those filled with pride, those who justify and blame shift and deny that they have denied Jesus, slap God's merciful hand away as it approaches. God is drawing near to everybody, but those who are prideful says, you know what, God, I don't need your hand, and they slap it away. I don't need your grace, and they slap it away. I don't need your mercy, and they slap it away. But those who know they are broken and contrite and humble can receive the hand of God to lift them back up and to reinstate them to their purpose. I invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this as we sing a song to conclude our time together. John has a commissioning just like Matthew does. We talk about the Great Commission often, you know, how, how Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into the world and preach the good news to all the nations. But every gospel has a commissioning. A lot of people don't know that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have commissioning. In John's gospel, we read this. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, there's so much that could be said about this. So many implications, so many applications. But one of them is that Jesus met sinners where they're at. In their sin. In their humanity. In their brokenness. In their insecurity. In their flawed, broken hearts. Jesus met sinners where they were at. But he also met them in their humility and contrition and he forgave them and healed them and restored them to the purpose and to the work and to a productive future. And if that is true, my friends, we should do the same with one another. You know, one of the reasons that the church and Christians have gotten such a bad reputation over the centuries is because the church has become a fortress for cowards. 
rather than a hospital for sinners. If you go to a hospital because you know that you're wounded, you're not going to stay there forever. They're going to heal you. They're going to restore you. And then they're going to release you back out into the world to live your life and do your work. And that is exactly what Jesus does for each one of us. He is not healing us so that we can stay protected in this little bubble and never get harmed again, never fail again, never sin again. Jesus meets us in our greatest time of need to restore us and to commission us out into the world. And so I don't know who of you needs to hear this this morning. I don't know who of you feel like you are beyond saving. You've done too many wrongs to feel used to be of purpose. It's just not true. The world may tell you that because you got fired from your job or because you screwed up, but that's just not true. God is willing to reinstate you and to send you back out into the world to do his work again. We serve a very merciful God. And there's no amount of sin or failure that can outfill God's mercy for those who are contrite. And so, Heavenly Father, I, I want to, on behalf of this community, on behalf of this people, Father, I want to acknowledge that, <clears throat> that we're flawed and that we're broken and that we've done some things. And I pray, Father, that we would not be a people who hold others hostage and who we keep score, but that we would embrace one another with love because love keeps no record of wrongs. And that we would embrace each other with the same mercy that you have embraced us with, Father, that we would not keep people hostage to the ways that they have wronged us, but we would free them, Father, if they are willing, if they are contrite, if they are humble in heart and spirit, Father, to receive, to receive mercy and grace. May they be restored by it, Father, so that they can continue to do the work that you've called them to do. Thank you for how you have met me in my greatest time of need. Thank you for how you did not wait till I was perfect before you came to my rescue. Thank you how you did not come to any of our, you did not wait for any of us to be perfect before you came to our rescue, Father. And I just want to praise your name for how gracious you are. Praise your name for how merciful you are. Praise your name for what you're doing in us. For the glory belongs to you, Father. Now let us continue with the strength that you have empowered us by your Holy Spirit to go and speak boldly and courageously this message of grace and of mercy that this world is so desperately longing for. We do pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus.